Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this evening and turn to 1 John chapter 4. Last time we were together, we laid the foundation for what the Bible talks about when it speaks of spirits, drawn in both the Old Testament and New Testament from the word breath, or wind, we said that the concept of a spirit can reflect two different ideas. First, the idea of a personal spiritual being which can interact with the material world. This would include the Holy Spirit of God, angels, demons, including Satan, and also the spirit that is within man. And then second, the idea of an unseen force which acts upon material men or material things. Uh, this is more of an underlying attitude or an underlying direction into which people can be moved. And where we, we might credit this to some degree as being influenced by personal spiritual beings, yet we find that uh, this force in men and in cultures and in societies is also derivative simply of the human heart and the direction that humans can go and can indeed draw one another to go. And this week we are actually going to dig into the exhortation in the text regarding these spirits which act in the world. And specifically, we'll talk about how to examine the spirits that would seek to influence us because, and we must understand this, they are so very influential in the hearts and directions of men. People are carried about all the time by these concepts of spirits, these spirits that have gone out into the world, these ideas, these, these forces that have gone out and that are drawing people in one direction or another, the spirit of the age, the various spirits of any given age, people are so deeply influenced by them and we need to be able to discern them. So the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So we're brought to this exhortation. Believe not every spirit, but rather, he says, try the spirits, test the spirits, prove the spirits to discern whether or not they are of God. Every spirit that comes by, every force, every thought, every inclination, every ideology, every intent, every truth claim, we test, we prove that truth claim to discern whether or not it is of God. When we identify a spirit working, regardless of what we do or don't do about the nature of that, excuse me, what we, what we do or don't know about the nature of that spirit as maybe a personal being, maybe an unseen force, someone might say, well, I think that there's probably something uh, demonic happening beside, behind that, or maybe it's just the natural uh, wickedness in the heart of man that is drawing onto this idea. When people are being moved along by something unseen into a way of thinking, a way of acting, through teaching, through truth claims, we need to test that spirit. We need to discern whether it is of God. And of this point, we need to make something very clear. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. In this world in which we live, things don't always appear very black and white. Certainly not as black and white as we might like. Sometimes we have to make decisions based upon the nearest thing to a good choice. The better of less uh, of, of two less desirable options. Uh, we have come to the week where we are going to be voting for our politicians. And we are coming to a place where more or less we are voting for the less 
uh, the, 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 the more desirable of the two options, the least awful of the two options, right? And uh, that, that is oftentimes the way that these things go. Sometimes there isn't a good choice at all. Sometimes every choice is fine and it really doesn't matter and everything comes down to preference. But in the spiritual, things are a little more cut and dry than that. And by this, I don't mean that they're necessarily easy to discern or easy to decide, but rather that there are only two dispositions that every spirit in the world carries. It is either with God and so through Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, in agreement with Jesus Christ, or it is against him. There's really no middle ground there. It's either with Christ or it's against Christ. And this isn't as easy as saying, well, who uses biblical language? or who says good things about Jesus, or who calls themselves a Christian, that's not going to be a very good gauge as to whether something is with Christ or against Christ, because there's plenty of people who call themselves Christians who aren't. There's plenty of people who say good things about Christ who don't actually have any faith in Christ. It's about whether or not the spirit of the person, or the spirit of the teaching, or the spirit of the movement, or the spirit of the society, or the spirit of the culture, that all of these things, whether or not the fruit of their life manifests, or the fruit of that, 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 that teaching manifests something which is in agreement with God, with His character, with His will, with His word, or in opposition to God and His character and His word. And we are called to test these spirits for this reason, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, today I'm going to keep this warning very much in context, and I'll explain what I mean in due time, but we're going to devote our entire uh, evening next week to thinking about the nature of the false prophets. So next week, we're going to look at what Jesus said, what uh, Peter said. Uh, we, we are going to explore this idea of the false prophet and glean from the Word of God that which the Scriptures can uh, help us to understand. But as we keep this in the context of 1 John, think through with me what we have already considered. In 1 John, John is writing to a group of people. And within that group of people, there were some men among these readers who were making false claims about Christ. Men that had gone out from them but were not of them. They were instead anti-Christ. These men claimed that you could live in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life while still being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Which is why in 1 John 2, John had to say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if, you, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He was pointing to these people, teaching these things and saying, The love of the Father is not in them. It seemed as though they were insisting that nothing is sin to the believer. So that when you're a believer, no matter what you do, you are not sinning. Which is why John had to say in 1 John chapter 1, If any man say he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And in preaching these things, they had called their followers to separate from and even despise the other believers who were among them who did not agree with these teachings so that they were dividing the brethren so that John has to be teaching again and again that, this, uh, uh, that, that, that one of the marks of one who loves the Lord is that he also loves the brethren. And what John is showing throughout this whole book, this whole epistle, is that these things, these things that they were manifesting are not of God, making these teachers false prophets and making the things that they are introducing false spirits, 
spirits that are not of God. And notice how it is that John draws the connection between the concept of an antichrist spirit and the people who propagate it or the people who spread it. Try the spirits, John says, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. We may not know all the workings of spirits, the connection between the personal beings that are influencing the material things in this world and the unseen forces that move in hearts and in cultures. But we do know the ones who are taking those spirits and disseminating them out into the world, and they are false prophets. Men and women who tell lies in the name of God for personal gain. So then how do we distinguish between the false prophet and the true prophet? Well, we continue in verses 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world." So notice, first of all, that John is framing this discerning of, what, uh, of the spirits along the lines of what we know about God, not what we know about error or about the false spirit. Let me say that again. John is framing discerning of spirits along the lines of what we know about God, not what we know about the error. And what I mean by that is this. There are so many errors out there. If we spent all of our time trying to figure out all of these errors, learning all of the errors, if I spent all of my, if if, if I was going to teach you every error out there, we would do nothing but talk about errors every week. Every service, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Sunday, uh, Tuesday evening, all we'd be doing is going from one false doctrine to the next false doctrine, one uh, epoch of history to another epoch of history, one series of lies to another series of lies again and again and again and again. But the reason why we don't necessarily need to do that again and again and again and again is because if you know the real thing, then you can figure out what is not the real thing. If you know the true thing, then the counterfeits start to stand out. And so he frames his idea here on what we know about the Spirit, what we know about God. And what we know about God, specifically in this case Jesus Christ as it relates to these false teachers, is that he is come in the flesh. So anybody who does not confess, anybody whose doctrine, anybody whose ideas, anybody whose implications do not reflect the reality that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is not of God. It doesn't really matter what one claims about the world or about truth or even about the Bible. What matters is whether or not what, are, what they claim is consistent with the character of God with whom I have a personal relationship. If it's consistent, then it's going to be consistent with the book. If it's not consistent, then it's wrong. Then it's not of God. If what you claim is contrary to who God is, then it isn't from God. Because God does not con- exist in contradiction to himself. And the standard that John uses here is the standard of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Every spirit that positively affirms that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that refuses to affirm, every spirit, that would be a truth claim, that would be an ideology, that would be a teaching, that does not affirm in its teaching, in its ideology, in its spirit, in its direction, that Jesus has come in the flesh, it is by default not of God. Yeah, but pastor, it sounds really good. It doesn't matter. It's not of God. 
Yes, but pastor, it talks about God all the time. It doesn't matter. It's not of God. It's not of God if it does not affirm that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now, as we consider what John is saying here, it becomes quite plain that John's statement is a subset of a broader standard of spiritual discernment. John's focus here is upon Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. Now, this is not the only standard by which something can be discerned as of God or not of God. This is a subset. This is one of several possible standards. Well, why doesn't John list them all? Because John is only combating one of them in 1 John. And the one that he's combating in 1 John is not about whether Jesus is God. It's about whether Jesus was a man. Whoa. Who's going to deny that Jesus was a man? Well, there's the, it, this falls back upon a historical heresy called docetism. And docetism taught that Jesus Christ was not actually a human man, but rather he was a manifestation, a hum, a, an apparition, that he came in the form of a man, but that he did not actually take on human flesh. And this is something that not just in history, but something that is still uh, around today. We still have these ideas today. So there are several fronts that we might be fighting when we're trying the spirits of God. One of the fronts that we might be fighting is, is Jesus God? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the other front that we may actually fight is, is Jesus a man? It's not just one side, it's the other side as well. So in this case, John is focusing in on whether or not Jesus Christ is a man, not whether or not Jesus Christ is God. Now, we might assume that John focuses upon this contention because this was the contention that was happening in their experience. That whoever these teachers were that had come and said that you can love, love the world and that, that you don't sin anymore and uh, that... Uh, have separated them from the brethren, that these false teachers were also teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he did not actually take on flesh, but that he was perhaps just an apparition, just as as very similar to what we would understand of the angels in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. These were angelic beings that took on human form, but did not actually take on human flesh. Now, the debate here is, again, not at all about whether Jesus was divine. This debate was about whether Jesus was human. There are whole other heresies that question whether or not Jesus is God. These men were questioning whether or not Jesus is a man. And in this, I mention again that John is not giving the definitive test. So, in other words... If I wanted to have a definitive test of trying the spirits, 1 John 4 verse 1 would become a part of that definitive test. It would not be the whole test. It's a test, not the test, keyed in specifically to the problem of his readers. So if I wanted to test whether or not there was a false spirit, I would test, are they claiming that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? But I would also test... Are they claiming that Jesus Christ is God? And that would be a second side of the coin in testing false teaching. So let's go ahead and think through both of those sides of the coin this evening. We believe from the Bible that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. In theology, we call this the hypostatic union. 
This truth being derived from various statements, both of Jesus Christ and of his apostles. Also Old Testament prophets. And the theological necessities that undergird redemption. Now, I'm not going to give the, uh, the, the, the most comprehensive teaching on either of these topics because the most comprehensive teaching is not going to fit well into the time that we have this evening. Nor am I going to divert ourselves dramatically from 1 John in order to run down that rabbit trail. However, I would like to take a moment and show you from the scriptures just briefly why it is we believe that Jesus was both 100% a man and 100% God. So let's explore them in turn. First, why must Jesus be 100% man? And for this, we go to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 19, it's going to be a fairly large passage, so stick with me here. The Bible says this, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than... Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... So de- and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead... Much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore... As by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, we have in this very large passage several very clear statements of Jesus' humanity. Now, the first of these is simply the fact that he is called time and again a man, given in the same context as calling Adam a man, without any qualification, without any distinction. It says, Adam, the man, brought sin into the world. Jesus, the man, paid for sin. And so in the simplicity and clarity of the text, there is no reason to state that Jesus was anything other than a man. He was born, he grew, he ate, he drank, he slept. He was a man. But second, and perhaps more more convincing or or, or more uh, in, in depth, we find a very important theological contrast here. We've talked about it quite a bit in our Genesis series. The fact that Adam was the man who brought sin into the world and that sin was thus imputed to all of us so that we all have a sin nature because of Adam. 
And there needed to thus be, if we were going to be redeemed from our sin, what we would need unto that redemption is a perfect man. A man who could then bear the sin in the same way that a man brought us into this mess. Only a man could get us out of this mess. This is why God had to become a man. By one man sin entered into the world, verse 12 says. The grace of God by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Verse 15, there is a definitive and essential theological concept here that demands that as it was a man who condemned humanity into the judgment of sin, so it must be a man who then pays the debt for humanity's sin. It would not be enough for an angel to pretend to hang on that cross, for a spirit to pretend to hang on that cross, for an apparition, though he could not actually be affected, though he could not actually be touched, though he could not actually bleed, though he could not actually do these things, yet he was going to hang on that cross and pretend to pay for our sins. That would not be enough to fulfill God's justice. It had to be a man. It had to be the blood of a man. It had to be shed. It had to be a perfect man, a man who could bear the sins of men. Jesus had to be a man. A human representative is essential to the judicial process of atonement. So that if Jesus was not a human representative, but only a humanoid spirit, the entire model for atonement in the New Testament breaks down completely. So that Hebrews chapter 10 verses 4 through 13 tells us, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. He took on a body that had been prepared for him. Why? Because sacrifices of bulls and of goats was not enough. A body had to be prepared. A human had to make that sacrifice. Verse 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hath pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first the sacrifices of burnt offerings and of rams, that he may establish the second, a body thou hast prepared me. By the which establish the second, uh, excuse me, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through the body of Jesus Christ. He took on flesh. He became a man, a human body, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, his body sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. It was not possible for the, for the blood of bulls and of goats to be sufficient for his full atonement. The unrighteousness of man ushered sin into this world and the righteousness of a man would be what would defeat sin in this world. And any spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, any spirit that rejects the humanity of Jesus Christ is an antichrist spirit. Doesn't matter how many good things they say about him. Doesn't matter how much flowery speech. It doesn't matter how much charisma. It doesn't matter what they say about God or even what they say about the Bible. If they reject that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is an antichrist spirit. 
denying the clear necessity, theological necessity of a human mediator for sin taught by Jesus and his apostles, taught in the Old Testament prophets. So that is why we believe Jesus was 100% a man. And indeed, he had to be so. And this was the controversy in 1 John. These false teachers seem to have no problem claiming that Jesus had not come in the flesh. Maybe he appeared as a man. Maybe he was a manifestation as a man. But they seem to deny that he had come in the flesh. But for the sake of being thorough, let's take it the other way also. Why is it that we believe Jesus was not only 100% man, but that he is also 100% God? And once again, we find the direct testimony in the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we have this one called the Word. The Word is the creator of all that is. The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Now, who is this Word? Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here it is. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word which verses 1 through 4 said was God credited with the creation of all that is, in whom is life and light, that word, the Bible says, was made flesh and dwelt among us. God took on flesh. And men beheld his glory. And this glory was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this phrase only begotten is a very important one. It's a very misunderstood one. And the reason why it's misunderstood is because modern translations have shied away from the idea of this word. This is one of those places where I believe modern translations do true harm to the text of Scripture. The phrase only begotten, as we find it here, is not the same as one and only. If you go to more modern translations, it will say one and only son or something to that effect. These are not the same thing. Now, the reason why they do this is because the idea of being begotten conjures up the idea of being created or having a beginning. And because we know that Jesus is God, he was not created by the Father, but he was in eternity past with the Father, it makes people very uncomfortable when they read that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And it helps people like the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons to be able to point to something to say, see, Jesus is created. Jesus can't be the one true God because Jesus was created as the only begotten Son of God. And if that's what this was saying, that would be a problem, but that's not what this means. That is not what the title, Only Begotten Son of God, means. And notice what I say there. It is not a description. It is a title. It is a title that was given to Jesus. It is not a statement of exclusivity in relationship with a father. It is a title that Jesus earned. 
manifesting or expressing the unique relationship that he had with the Father because of his submission and obedience to the cross. Modern translations have changed this word, as I said, so that it doesn't give, the pe- give people the impression that Jesus is a created being. Because the word begotten means to be born or created. And Jesus is the eternal God. So what they have done is they have actually said, we're going to change what these words mean so that we don't give people the wrong impression. But that's so unnecessary. It's so unnecessary because that's not what only begotten means. And instead of allowing the Bible to speak for itself, because the Bible does explain what only begotten means, modern translations just change the text. And that's not a good thing. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, It is not saying that the Father created the Son, nor is it saying that the Son is inferior to the Father. Much to the contrary, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God is a title that was given to Him and Him alone that He earned when He was raised from the dead as a stamp of approval. Him raising from the dead and being called the only begotten Son of God is the stamp of approval that proves that what Jesus did on the cross was accepted as a sacrifice by God for our sins. It is the stamp that we have in the Scriptures that what Jesus did is actually sufficient before the Father. You say, Pastor, how do we know that? Well, we learn that from Paul's sermon to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. In Acts chapter 13. There Paul gives his listeners a history lesson on false teachers and the distinctions with Jesus Christ. And that great distinction is announced in verses 32 and 33. Paul says, We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So Paul quotes here from Psalm chapter 2, which says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And, it, and Psalm 2 tells us that there was and is a day when Messiah became the only begotten son of God in history. And when Paul is connecting the links to the day that Jesus became the only begotten son, he connects that link directly to the day that Jesus was raised again from the dead. So Jesus, the Bible says, became the only begotten son of God on the day when he was risen from the dead. Now, wait a minute. Well before Jesus was risen from the dead, he was calling himself the only begotten son of God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said that in John chapter 3. He had not risen from the dead yet. He had not been crucified yet. Why was he calling himself the only begotten son before he actually officially became the only begotten son? Well, we have this interesting insight into this in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. In Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, the Bible calls Jesus the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The idea there being that though 
there would be a point in time when Jesus would actually die on the cross, where he would be slain for the sins of the world. Yet before the worlds were even founded, because God is outside of time and because God is not bound by time and because God has always had a sovereign plan for what he was going to do, it was already decided in the heavenlies that Jesus Christ, that, that God, the, the Son, that the second person of the Godhead would become a man, would be Jesus, the Messiah, would die on the cross for our sins, would be raised again uh, for our transgressions, would re- uh, um, ascend into heaven, would return for his own, would rule and reign in righteousness, and would be with us forever in eternity. As a matter of fact, in that Jesus is outside of time, he is already, he's in creation and he's in his kingdom at the same time. He's already ruling and reigning with us in his kingdom as far as he's concerned, because he is not bound by time. So if Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, So that John could say when he saw Jesus coming on the day of his baptism, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Though he had not yet become that Lamb, that would happen on the cross. It is not a stretch to say that Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son before the foundation of the world, though he would not actually in time earn that title until the day that he rose from the dead. Now, unfortunately, because modern translations don't want to encourage anyone to do that work and they're afraid of letting people do that work, they just say, all only begotten means is one and only. So much more than that. It means that Jesus Christ is the one who earned the right to be our exclusive redeemer and only begotten son is a title that God gave to him and him alone to show that he was that one. And thank God our King James Bibles do not take that out. And so all of this was accomplished, Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. And of this, Jesus himself testified in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 33. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So Jesus testifies to the unique relationship that he has with his Father. And he says there in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now notice how the Jews respond to that. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. So Jesus here declares that he and the Father are one, and the Jews were extremely upset by this. Why were they so upset by this? Well, they explain why they were upset by this. Because Jesus, in saying, I and my Father are one, he is telling them that he is co-equal with the Father, that he is God. Philippians chapter 2, telling us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but, took him, uh, but, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto, the, uh, unto death, even the death of the cross. 
co-equal with God, taking on flesh. 100% God, 100% man. Jesus declared himself to be God. We saw that from John 1. We see this in John 10. And to make this abundantly clear, 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That can't be anyone but Jesus. God manifest in flesh. Now, if we had not already established that Jesus was 100% human, well, then this could be very controversial. Ah, see, pastor, it does not say Jesus took on flesh. It says Jesus was manifested in the flesh, an apparition. No, we've already proved that Jesus is 100% human. We've already settled that. This is 100% God. He is human. This says that that God took on flesh. But as John says in 1 John chapter 4, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has not come in the flesh is not of God. And then here in 1 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says plainly, it was God who was manifest in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And this leads us to that one and only possible conclusion, the one that the church from age to age, from generation to generation has affirmed that Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of a woman, born under the law, God in flesh. And to that end, we find the standard that John gives us in 1 John 4, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is not come in the flesh is also not of God, to be a very true standard, but again, not a comprehensive standard. Because a spirit might confess that Jesus is God, but not man. A spirit might also confess that Jesus was a man, but not God. Now, 1 John doesn't touch on that one because that wasn't the controversy of the day. We go to other passages of Scripture to touch on that. But if a spirit does not confess that God is manifest in flesh, that spirit is also not of God. That is Antichrist. Just as much as the spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is not come in the flesh, is not of God. Both of those are antichrist spirits. Consider some of the other teachings in Scripture about spirits and their testifying of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Paul writes, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Two more standards by which we judge spirits. Any spirit that would call Jesus accursed. So when that person walking down the street, it's amazing, isn't it? You never hear people take the name of Buddha in vain. They take the name of Jesus in vain, don't they? You never hear people yelling out expletives about the other gods. They're they're accursing Jesus. There's nobody who accurses Jesus who is doing so in the Spirit of God. There's no man who who can say that Jesus Christ is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. 
There's another standard by which we can judge the spirits. Does the spirit confess, not just say, but does that spirit, that teaching, that, that direction, that ideology, that, that idea, does it confess, does it acknowledge, does it align with the lordship of Jesus Christ? If it aligns with his lordship, it's of God. If it doesn't, it's antichrist. These are standards. So 1 John gives a standard, but not all of them. So now we've found three, four, technically. We found if a spirit does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not of God. If a spirit does not confess that Jesus, Jesus Christ is God, not of God. If a spirit calls Jesus accursed, not of God. If a spirit denies the lordship of Christ, not of God. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. A spirit that does not confess the Lord Jesus, a similar standard to that idea of lordship, Jesus' authority, his work, his resurrection from the dead. If, if a spirit walks in opposition to the authority of Jesus, it's not of God. And notice, if you will, with me, the great through line of all this. As we come to the question of how do we successfully prove, try, test a spirit, an ideology, a teaching, a direction, a, 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 any of those things, be it some personal being, such as an angel, be it some human, such as a spiritual teacher, some unseen force upon individuals, such as a rejection of, of biblical marriage or the rejection of the sexes or whatever it might be, each one of these spirits is subject to the fullness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the standard, if you've noticed, the one thing that connects all four of these standards, the least common denominator for our Tuesday night crowd, the thing that connects them all is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that makes sense because we're calling those false spirits Antichrist. Jesus is the standard. If a spirit is going in the same direction as Jesus, if a spirit is in agreement with Jesus, if a spirit is manifesting the fruit of that which Jesus taught, if a spirit is affirming who Jesus is and what Jesus did, it's of God. If it does not, it is Antichrist. It's as simple as that. Yeah, but those people that do that, they're, they're really, they're, they're good people. They're nice people. Okay, that's fine, but they're antichrist. Moral people, great. Religious people, okay. Thoughtful people, yep. I get along with them, fine, good. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that it's not antichrist. That's the standard. Now, as we close, let's gain some perspective on this teaching. There are those who are false teachers, and as I said, we'll consider this next week. These men and women who know exactly what they're doing. Know that they are leading people astray, and they're doing it for personal gain. We'll talk about that next week. But the majority of the people you will meet in this world who are living under an antichrist spirit are not false teachers. They are the victims of false teachers. They are deceived. 
They are stuck in a rut of false teaching. They are stuck in the spirit of Antichrist. They have been carried away by that spirit. They have been drawn into it and they are living in its flow without even knowing it. It's the very air they breathe. They don't know what it is. They just know that it's what they do. They just know that it's what's happening around them. It's just, it's just the mindset. It's just the culture. It's just the worldview. It's just the way people are. And they are in need of our prayers and our help. Satan and his demons are the great enemy. False prophets are his mouthpiece. Everyone else is the target. And there's a different strategy that we must use when dealing with demonic error, false teacher error, and deceived person error. And it all comes back to the same purpose through these different methods. It is for us to stand against error with all of our spiritual might by standing for, living in, and manifesting a testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As it relates to false spirits, that being personal beings which might be exerting some measure of influence upon the spirits and minds of others. And these things are very real. Demons are very active in the world. They're very active in the world. And let's not pretend anything else. The nearest thing we have to clarity on this issue is in Jude. Jude's statement denouncing the methods of false teachers as they would rebuke spirits. Jude, verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now we'll fill out the teaching on this next week in 2 Peter chapter 2. But we fall back upon the authority of God. To deal with that spirit. You have, on the, on the authority of God's word, we resist the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are contending with them, but how is it that the Bible says to contend? It does not say, as you'll find on television, us getting up and saying, I rebuke you, spirits. No, that's, that's exactly what Jude verse 9 says you don't do. Because even Michael the archangel wouldn't do that. If Michael the archangel won't do that, you should not be doing it. If Michael the archangel will not say, I rebuke you, Satan, then any guy on television, any woman on television saying, Satan, I rebuke you, that's Antichrist. So what does Ephesians chapter 6 tell us is the method by which we contend with these spirits of God, by which we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers? It says, put on the whole armor of God. That's what it says. Nowhere in the Bible do we see examples of men, apart from Jesus, who is God, claiming his own authority over spiritual entities. We are in Christ, but no scripture tells us that we carry his authority into the spiritual realms the way Christ carried it. We can perhaps invoke his authority. Paul was able to do that. The apostles were able to do that. We can call out to Christ and ask Christ to rebuke these authorities. But we cannot carry that ourselves. We put on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, our loins girt about with truth. 
our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in our hands, the shield of faith, and we stand in truth and on truth against the enemy. So that's how we deal with false teachers. I've preached an entire spiritual warfare series. I encourage you to listen to it if you want more insight into that. It's on YouTube. It's on Sermon Audio. As far as false teachers, we read this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. What do we do with false teachers? We reject any and every overture of spirit or man which preaches any other message than the gospel of Jesus Christ about Jesus. Any perversion of the person and work of Jesus Christ is to be vehemently rejected from our minds, from our spirits, from our homes, from our churches. It doesn't matter if that teacher has a lot of other good stuff to say. It doesn't matter how learned he is. It doesn't matter how much insight he has into the things of history, into the things of philosophy, into the things of culture. If his teaching does not reflect properly the person and work of Jesus Christ, don't spend your time listening to him on issues of spirituality. Are there not good men that you can listen to? Now, maybe they aren't as interesting. Maybe they aren't as engaging. Maybe they preach for too long. But are there not good men? Are there not people that you can go to that will teach you the truth, that will not compromise on the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do you really have to go to those people who you say, well, you know, uh, I don't really like the gospel that they preach, but hey, it's got a lot of other really interesting stuff. Hmm. Paul says, if anyone preaches any other gospel than the gospel that you have received in the word of God, let him be accursed. And I qualify this carefully. You can still listen to that man's advice on how to fix your car. Oh, sorry, you don't believe the gospel. You can't help me fix my car. No, that, that, you don't have to do that. You, don't, you, you can listen to his advice, uh, advice on what, what the best toaster is to buy. That's fine. You can listen to his advice on how to protect your financial investments. All good. But the moment that man and any man, any spirit, seeks to step into the spiritual and make claims about Christ, no matter how good they may sound, we must reject them. Okay, so we've thought about the false spirit. What do we do with the false spirit? The Lord rebuke you. We invoke the Lord. We put on the whole armor of God. We stand in that day on the faith, on the truths of the word of God, having our helmet of salvation, our shield of faith, and we stand in that wicked day against the, 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 the assault of the enemy. We, we, we seek unto the Lord to protect us from those things. Against the false teacher, we fight him by rejecting him, by refusing to listen, by standing for the truth amidst the lies. Finally, let's consider those who are spiritually deceived. The victims, in a sense. Those who failed to try the spirits and so fell into the deceptions of these false spirits and these false teachers. The solution to error is always truth. 
Light is what pushes out darkness. The solution to error is not arguing. The solution to error is not anger. The solution to error is not mockery. The solution to error is not scorn. The solution to error is truth. Don't move an inch from the truth of God. Don't move an inch from the truth of his word. Stand firm in God's truth. Manifest it in your words. Manifest it in your deeds. Plead with those who are gone astray, who are in that darkness, who don't even know that they are in darkness, to turn from that darkness and unto the light. Validate to them the truth of the words that you're saying by the manner in which you live. And really, honestly, if I may give you a point there, it's going to be awful hard for people to believe the truths of this book out of your mouth if you're not living them. If you're not validating them in the manner in which you live, why should anyone believe when, they, when those words come out of your mouth? Hypocrisy is never going to convince anyone. In a society which thinks that winning, is, uh, winning an argument is the goal of every interaction, it's basically where our society is today. So-and-so destroys someone else, right? That's what we want. We want to see people destroyed by other people's arguments. In that kind of a society, our goal is not to win an argument. Our goal is to win hearts. And winning hearts and winning arguments are very different things. They require very different tactics. It is actually a rare thing that winning an argument with someone will also win their heart. Because winning an argument invokes a person's pride. Whereas winning their heart seeks to bring them unto humility. So the key to fighting this battle for truth is not to shame, it's not to belittle, it's not to win. We talked about that on Tuesdays in our judgment series. It is to manifest the word of God in deed and in truth, in word and in deed. And yes, to rebuke and to separate from that which is false. We are to reflect in this another exhortation from Jude related to false teaching. This time it is related to those who are come, overcome by it. Jude verses 21 through 23. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. That word difference there means to make a distinction. Have compassion show a distinction between you and them. We're not always going to be different from the world around us, but we will always be distinct. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. For some, we show compassion if that just perchance the love of Christ might lead them to repentance. With others, we need to speak with fearful urgency, seeking to pull them away from errors that they have fallen into and the deceits that they have fallen into that will end in their judgment. But always with a particular spirit within us, and that's a spirit that's reflected in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26, where the Bible tells us this. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must 
not strive. But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, which is what they're doing, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. For those who are taken captive by the snare of the devil, overcome with the spirit of Antichrist, with the spirit of error, the servant of the Lord does not strive, Christian. You're not going to win by fighting them. Be gentle. Be ready to teach. Be ready to give answers when they ask. Be patient. Do so in meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Weakness is not having strength. Meekness is when your strength is under control, when it's directed and diverted unto a proper end. That's meekness. Harness to your goal with discipline and direction and taking all of that strength that you have and putting it in the, where, it's, where it does the, the proper good. Instead of flailing about in anger or in violence, Out of control. No. Meekness. Strength under control. Strength directed and purposed. If perchance those who have fallen into these errors might just be able through your gentleness, through your patient care, through your readiness to teach, through your meekness, your unwavering commitment to the truth in word and in deed, just perhaps you might be able to bring them to repentance and the acknowledging of the truth, recovering them from the snare of the devil. But it all begins, Christian, by trying the spirits, whether they are of God, identifying what is true, what is false, and identifying those who have been captivated by Antichrist and those who are in truth. And if the claim, the exhortation, the teachings that are are in the world, the ideologies, the thoughts, the directions, if they are not in line with Jesus' character, with his teaching, with his finished work as 100% God and 100% man, well, then we have no part in it. We stand apart from it. And we shine the light toward it. And as you think on these things, the task might seem daunting, might seem nearly impossible. I've given you an awful lot this evening. How do we go about doing that? How can we possibly win when there's so much to overcome? If I were, like I said, if I were to talk through all of the false spirits in the world, we'd be doing that every week, week in and week out. How is it possible that we can combat those things? Well, fortunately, 1 John chapter 4 did not end at verse 3. So we read verses 4 through 6, which tell us this. Ye are of God, little children. And have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Isn't that a beautiful promise? How do I do this, Pastor? You don't. God does. But ye are of God. So stay in the love of God. Do not strive. Have to teach patient, gentle, meekness. Live the truth. Shine the truth. Speak the truth. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, 
and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Look, you can't do anything to convince people in that sense of truth and error. It is not our job to be the convincing work. It is our job to live the truth. And then we let God overcome. If they will listen to truth, they will receive truth. If they will not listen, they will not receive. That's not our problem. It's our job to tell. It's our job to live. It's about God in you. It's not about you. Greater is he that is in you, though, than he that is in this world. The spirit of truth in Christ is greater than the spirit of Antichrist through false prophets. The world will hear the spirit of error. But as we proclaim truth, as we live in truth, and we do so with confidence that it is the truth, that those who want the truth will hear it. And in this we are reminded that it is not your strength, it is not your wisdom, it is not your ability to overcome darkness that will ever win the day. It is God's ability. It is God's strength. It is God's might. It is God's wisdom that will win the day. So then your job is what? Well, what's First John teaching us? Be right with God. Be right with one another. Your job is to walk in the Spirit so that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, may manifest itself in you in word and in deed. So be right with God. Live it. Speak it. Manifest it. Bear the fruit. And then leave the results to God. If we will but commit ourselves to the spirit of truth and live in that truth to God's glory. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.